so that was the disgraced comedian Louis C.K. talking uh, a few years ago. How many of y'all saw that interview? Yeah, just a few people are brave enough to be like, yeah, I watched Conan back in the day. Okay, so Louis C.K. was describing, I think, pretty profoundly our modern experience in the world. That satisfaction... We really don't have. Maybe you have some level of satisfaction with your products for a brief moment. But it's elusive. I I think joy is such a fragile thing for so many people. And and for the next generation, the uh, Gen Z coming up, I, I am sincerely concerned for you. Because I see so much mental health struggles and all kinds of, of, um, fragility, and part of it is because you think you're unhealthy in a normal world. I would say you're normal in a healthy world. And so we're going through Ecclesiastes because Ecclesiastes really is a word for our moment. I don't know how your life is going, but I'm pretty sure all of us have this in common. None of us are really satisfied. You might be content You might be grateful, but as in like completely satisfied with your marriage, with your relationships, with your family, with your friendships, with your stuff. Very few of us, if any of us, are that. And part of that is because that's the world we're in. Our world, our modern secular world, wants us unhappy and discontent. Because those are the people that buy stuff. And that might sound like an overstatement, so let me prove it to you. I've, I've told you before about a guy named Edward Bernays, who was Sigmund Freud, the great psychologist who's influenced the world with his uh, ideas. Sigmund Freud's nephew was a guy named Edward Bernays. And Edward Bernays took his uncle's big ideas that people are driven by desires that they're not even aware of. That um, He took his uncle's idea and used it for Propaganda. He worked with the War Department in World War I. Um, he he, he uh, drew on those instincts that everybody has for, you know, sexual drives or, or safety or, you know, uh, ple- uh, to pursue pleasure and avoid pain, all those kind of things. And he used that against the other armies that America was fighting. And then after World War I ended, he wrote a book called Propaganda. Um, and in that book, he said that the same tactics that worked in wartime could also work during peace. He said, people are basically like sheep, and you can form cultural opinions if you just go after their unspoken desires. And so he did this. He, he's, he's done a lot of stuff. He was the, if, if you're in marketing, you've heard of Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays, let me just show you a couple of things he did. Um, Edward Bernays got hired by Lucky Strikes to get women to smoke because half the population didn't smoke. Women, it was a stigma thing. So he did, he had a couple of things, but one thing he did to get women to smoke was he knew that uh, smoking suppressed appetite. And before Edward Bernays, the modern cultural ideal for a woman's figure was just a normal woman. But Edward Bernays started hiring thin models and promoting that as an ideal. In like a three-year campaign, he started promoting that as an ideal. And then after he sold the problem, he sold cigarettes 
as a solution. Reach for a lucky and not for a sweet. Go to the next one. He connected the um, sexual desire to cigarettes. If you've ever seen a, a couple smoke in bed, that was Edward Bernays. He was trying to leverage your desire for that. Go to the next one. To keep a slender figure, no one can deny, reach for a lucky instead of a sweet. Um, he was tapping into your deepest desires. And by the way, do we not still fall for this? I mean, everything from toothpaste to hamburgers are being sold to us because of our desires that we don't talk about. That's one reason why we're perpetually dissatisfied. But another reason, to quote the great theologian Lady Gaga, is because we were born this way. So what do you want, really? Not what you're being bombarded with telling you what you want. What do you want, really? And, and why are we perpetually dissatisfied with everything that up until this point we thought we wanted? Because chances are you got most of what you've wanted in your life. And yet the same thinking you apply to your future hasn't worked in your past. So, for example, here's what we, we're still haunted by desire, right? And, and so now we think if we just would have married a different person, or if we would have had kids or not had kids or had different kids or got that job or that house or if we moved to the next city. But in your past, has this not been true? What you thought would satisfy you actually brought a whole new set of dissatisfactions. So we're going through a series, Ecclesiastes, and the reason I'm going, I want us to do this series, one, it is, it's created more popular culture than most people realize. Like the birds, they wrote a song about this. Turn, turn, turn. Uh, the guy who wrote Moby Dick, Herman Melville, he said it's the most truest book in the Bible. And he said, the reason you know it's true is because of the sadness in it. He said, I trust the person who wrote Ecclesiastes because that person lived a hard life. You can trust a person who has bled and suffered. Uh, the psychologist Jonathan Haidt, he's a, a Jewish atheist psychologist. He's, done a, a, he's actually done some great work, The Righteous Mind. I highly recommend that book. Um, he, he wrote a book a few years ago called The Hi Happiness Hypothesis, and he studied the, the historical thinking on happiness. And he opens up that chapter with Ecclesiastes. And here's what he says. The author of Ecclesiastes wasn't just battling the fear of meaninglessness. He was battling the disappointment of, watch this, success. What do you do when you get everything you want and find out it's not all you thought it would be? That nothing brought satisfaction. This is an abiding human problem and there's plenty of modern empirical research that backs it up. Studies find a very weak correlation between wealth and contentment. And the more prosperous a society grows, the more common is depression. In America, we talk a lot about success. I don't know about you, I grew up poor, and when I was in high school, the thing I wanted was to stop being poor. But what kind of success do you want? And when you get it, are you sure it's going to do what you think it's going to do? 
Remember a couple weeks ago when we started this series, we had a telescope out. And we talked about the word telos means ultimate aim or object. In other words, your life is headed in a direction. And chances are you have some say in what direction that is headed. Ecclesiastes, y'all know those motivational posters in corporate offices and stuff? Have you seen the online, the demotivational posters? This is Ecclesiastes in a picture. Ambition. The journey of a thousand miles sometimes ends very, very badly. So, little salmon, are you sure you want to go down that stream? And that's what Ecclesiastes is trying to do. It opens up with a not-so-holy experiment. So open in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Uh, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. This guy should write fortune cookies. And who is this talking? Well, it's in, you know, Ecclesiastes is a little bit confusing because it says it's the preacher or the teacher, but this is the voice of Solomon, King Solomon, son of David. And the reason it's important for you to know that is because Solomon was the wisest, wealthiest, most powerful person um, in Israel's history. Outside of Jesus, he, he had incredible influence. Solomon had everything we think we want. Everything that we think would make our life complete and full of joy, Solomon had it. And he's radioing back from the end of that stream. That journey ends badly. So here's what he does. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he sets out on an experiment. He said, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding my wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their life. So here's what he does. He sets out on this kind of life experiment with all the vast resources he has to test pleasure. And if you know the life of Solomon, you know he did this well. He's, he dedicates his resources, his energy, his life to uh, devour as much pleasure as he can. So he has comedians in. He's bringing the best food in. He's bringing out barrels and barrels of wine. Seven days a week for extended periods of time. Now, um, we got to be careful here because we I, I know us. And I know us thinking like, ah, oh, yeah, but it's 2023. 20, we could have more fun. We could do more stuff. Let me show you what Solomon's parties looked like. So in 1 Kings um, chapter 4, it says, Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of the finest flour and 60 cores of meal. For those of you that like the metric system better, that's 220 liters. That's a lot of food. Not just that, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20, these are daily provisions, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, uh, and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. For he ruled over all the kingdoms west of the Euphrates River. Here's what Solomon has. He has all these resources. He's basically throwing kegger after kegger after kegger. And he looks at you, he looks at us, and he looks at our little backyard barbecue, and he's like, please. <laughs> oh, that's cute. That's cute. And eventually, at the end of this, Solomon's like... 
He, he does this for I don't know how long, but he just dedicates himself to the pursuit of pleasure. And at some point, he gets tired of waking up in a chariot, coming back from Mexico with a face tattoo or whatever, and he's like, man, i got to make something of my life. So he decides he's going to make something with his life. He wanted to do something, so in verse 4 of chapter 2, this is what he does with his life experiment. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought... Well, hold on. We'll come back to that. So, here's... At this point, he decides he's going to start creating. Now, if you know anything about the life of Solomon or ancient history, you know that one of the things he built was the temple. It was one of the ancient wonders of the world. It took him seven years to build it. When he says, I built houses for myself, it took him seven years to build the temple. It took him 14 years to build his own, his house. So these are not small things. And by the way, I like that Ecclesiastes has this in there because I don't know about you, but one of the things that I think is a, um, a great joy in life is creating stuff, right? I don't do a lot with my delicate book reading hands, but when I do create stuff, I step back and feel a sense of admiration and a good kind of pride. Like last year when we stained the deck, at the end of that, I stepped back and I was like, I did this. And yeah, I did it with the wrong paint at first, and then I had to go back and do it again, but eventually I did this. And Solomon looks at me, or he looks at your great life projects, and he's like, yeah, I know that. But in the end, anybody seen Solomon's houses or temples? No, because they did exactly what he knew they would do. They became rubble. Solomon didn't just plant trees. He planted forests. He moved mountains. He rerouted rivers. He's wanting to build a legacy. But ultimately, it all goes to dust. Then he goes on. In verse 7, he says, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves that were born in my house. Slavery has been since sin entered the world just the way the world operated. It is an aberration in human history that the last few hundred years um, we have, because of Christianity, grown this kind of conscience. And by the way, it's very much for the good, but I want you to know, it's not you know, race-based, chattel, slavery, um, and God is against it, obviously, because exodus. Um, but this is what he did. This is a life project. Get people to do stuff for me that I don't want to do myself. I own more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed all kinds of silver and gold for myself. Basically, Solomon doesn't do a thing. Everybody waited hand and foot. He wakes up, he gets a massage, somebody makes him breakfast, somebody chews it and gives it to him or whatever. I mean, he, do, he doesn't have to do anything for himself. And he sat back and he enjoyed his wealth. He didn't, if he liked the song, he didn't download the song, he bought the band. Like he doesn't, you know, buy the Dutton Ranch, he buys Montana. You know what I'm saying? And, and then he goes into what he's infamous for. Solomon gets 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now this is right, that's right. He, 
he, uh, this is really important because of uh, Freud and uh, Edward Bernays and all this, you know, that's used to sell us every, you know, toothbrush uh, hamburgers. Solomon looks at us and our sexual revolution and he'd say, how's that working out for you? He looks at Hugh Hefner and his six girlfriends and he's like, six? <laughs> I married six women in August. And he still says this. It's meaningless. It's all just meaningless. And later on, he's going to say this one line that unlocks Ecclesiastes or, or this little life experience. God, turns out, has placed eternity in the human heart. And that means that the reason nothing really satisfies you under the sun is because you know you weren't made for just life under the sun. I don't know how to describe it, but it's like there's this groove in our soul. It's like somehow we long for the world the way it was originally meant to be and the way it will one day be again. And so Solomon is telling you with his life, with all the vast resources he had, anything under the sun can't really scratch that itch. And here's my concern for you. My concern for you is because you don't have those resources, because you don't have this infinite amount of wealth, you will think that's the problem, not the direction itself. You will think that the problem is, if I could just have a little bit more, then it would work. And Solomon is radioing back, saying, listen, I dedicated my life to this. And if you spend the rest of your life chasing it, you will find no lasting happiness. You will just, in the words of Louis C.K., be kind of satisfied with your products for a time, and then you die. To quote the greatest showman, towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. And that's when Solomon speaks up and says, because God has placed eternity in the human heart. And what's true of your pursuit of happiness and pleasure and work is also true in our relationships, in our marriages, and in our church life. So, it is no coincidence that in America... 5% five percent of the global, the Roman Catholic Church, 5% of the Roman Catholic Church population is in America. And it's also in America where 80% of the annulments in marriages take place. Because we, in our modern secular world, are perpetually dissatisfied. A few years in Chicago... A few years ago in Chicago, there was an ad that ran by a law, a law firm. Life's short. Get a divorce. 
And we had to crop that picture because on both sides of it were scantily clad a man and a woman. And basically what they're trying to do is point out that your marriage isn't really satisfying you. I think Ecclesiastes is a word for our moment, especially if you're going to be around billboards or advertisement. People, we are living in Edward Bernays' shadow. And Solomon is trying to radio back. It's a lie. It doesn't work. And you know this at one part of your... But you keep, we keep buying it. You, you know that the things you thought would satisfy you in the past haven't. But, and tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. I bet that next one will. And that's where Ecclesiastes is trying to do its work on us. Because that new relationship, that next marriage, moving to that new city, that next job or house won't complete you. And in America, going to that next church won't fix you. I love this church. I love uh, being here. But here's what I know about us. I've worked at some great churches in my life. And and a few different times, I've been a part of what um, I would call hot church where it was the church in town where people were coming to and, you know, it was growing and and people were growing in the Lord. Um, I sense that actually happening at PV right now, but here's what I want you to know. What's true about life under the sun is also true about churches under the sun. Um, It's easier, I think, to see this from an outside perspective. So let me do it this way. Uh, a few years ago, my Indian brother Simron, uh, I was in Delhi visiting him, and he, him and his wife took me to this temple in Delhi. And the temple has been re- remodeled about a decade ago. It has, uh, an, it has all the traditional Hindu stuff, but it also has an indoor boat ride, a movie theater, a musical fountain, and a hall of animatronic figures. The people who designed it Actually, can anybody guess where they went to for their inspiration? Disney World, that's right. And they came back and they're like, you know what we need? We need to do this. Now, some of y'all heard that and you're like, oh, that's awful. And another group of y'all heard that and was like, we have got to get an indoor boat ride at PV. (laughs) But don't we do this? couple hundred years we've been doing this. Look at this. In 1875, a guy named Josiah Holland said, the churches are full as a rule where the music is excellent. This fact may not be flattering to the preachers, but it is a fact. That is actually a quote hanging on Josh Kasinger's office wall. (laughs) What's he saying? Like, we go where they sing the songs we like. This is not a 2023 problem. This has been around for a long time. Listen... I've had moments, you've had moments, where you come to church and your soul soars, tears, joy, laughter, awe, reverence, wonder, and you've also had moments where you've left church and you've gone home and like kicked your dog, because life is hard. I've seen this, I've been doing uh, ministry like this for 20 years, and I've seen this a lot of times. People will come to a church, they'll leave one church, they'll go to another, and they'll come to this church and they'll be like... This is the best thing since God invented the blueberry Pop-Tart, right? But then, over time, disappointment creeps in, right? 
It turns out humans are in this community too. And we don't always do the right thing. We don't always sing the songs that are on your playlist or say the right things or respond in the right ways. And there's a temptation to do the very thing Solomon is warning us about against. And that is to think, over there, it'll be different. So the way Christian saints have talked about it throughout the centuries, and this is actually a really helpful practice for you to consider, is consolations and desolations. And so one like really good rhythm to get into in your life is to, at the end of every day, look back on the day and ask, where was God in that day? And where were their consolations, little joys that God gave me, and desolations, things that took a bit out of me? Christians have talked about it like this because I think it's helpful and it's an honest accounting of your day. But consolations are the little graces that make life more beautiful. Like there's stuff you might post on social media like uh, the joy of a new kid or the, the, a beautiful song or uh, the beauty of a familiar hymn or something. You know, the fellowship of other Jesus followers. I mean, those kind of things. Desolations are the things we don't talk about. Like the late-term miscarriage or the road rage we had, maybe on the way to church, or the passive-aggressive exchange we had over with another Christian over something silly, or worse, the way our small group took the other person's side, or how when we were in the hospital, it didn't seem like very many people showed up. To be involved in any kind of community involves stuff like this. But it's more than just us disappointing each other. If you ask most preachers, they'll tell you Sunday night's kind of hard. I've thought about this for a while. Some of it is like preacher hangover. You're like, you know, you wait, you're like in a fog. Did I really say that? That kind of stuff. But another thing, I think it's deeper. Because every week, what I want to say to you every week is is god and i can't quite give him to you cuz god is not a product god in our best days what we can do what preachers do is just help you realize that deep ache you have can only be satisfied with him and, and as you live life long enough, you'll start to notice this. Even those things that once brought you joy, like those consolations, can go dry. And you can start to use words to like judge what we're doing here, like boring or, or dry. And I say this to say a couple of things to all of us. One... If you've ever had those kind of problems with church, maybe your criticism is a calling. Maybe God is calling you to do something with this. Maybe the reason it bothers you so much is the Spirit nudging you to be a part of being the kind of church you're dreaming about. But two, church is a laboratory of love and contrary to the definitions that are out there of love, love is hard. It is easy to love people in theory. But when people get real, love needs to be deeper. 
there's a uh, NPR columnist uh, who is recovering from alcohol alcoholism um, named Heather King, and she Jesus found her in her alcoholism. She started getting sober, and she started going to church, and here's what she had to say about it. My first impulse was to think, my God, I don't want to get sober, or in the case of the church, worship with these nutcases, or boring people, or people with different politics, taste in music, food, books, or whatever. Nothing shatters our ego like worshiping with people we did not handpick. The humiliation of discovering that we are thrown in with the extremely unpromising people, people who are broken, misguided, wishy-washy, out for themselves, people who are us. But we don't come to church to be with people who are like us in the way we want them to be. We, become, we come because we have staked our souls on the fact that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and the church is the best place, the only place to be while we all struggle to figure out what that means. We come because we'd be hard-pressed to say, which is the bigger of the two scandals? That God loves us or that God loves everyone else? Let me tell you, since... COVID and since 2015, 16, I have seen this increasingly uh, a tendency to want to walk away because of all the desolations and all the disappointment. But in the words are the picture my friend Casey Ryan showed me, this is what a church without community is. I'm a Christian, but I don't need the church was a photo. Because you can't do this by yourself. And by the way, that disappointment we feel that maybe other people feel in us, isn't always bad. It might reveal a disordered love, that you love something too much. Or it might be one of the ways that God points you back to eternity. Over the past 20 years of doing this, I can tell you that I have seen a lot of disappointment in church. In fact, so much so that I would say church is an institution of disappointment because we're humans but we got we believe God is among us but just because church is going to always disappoint you doesn't mean it's a disappointing institution i believe in the miracle that is this thing that happens every week jesus in our midst i see it over and over again the ordinary is turned to extraordinary just step back and think about history i mean think about who we are who christians have always been just a bunch of ordinary kind of you know we're, we're we're nothing special nothing to write home about but through the years God has used his people that gossip and we're passive-aggressive and we are aggressive-aggressive. God has used us to give the world things like hospitals and human rights and relief aid charities and universities and have passed on a way of self-sacrifice from one generation to the next. The church is an institution of disappointment, but she is not a disappointing institution. And the reason this is important... Is because in consumer Christianity, our concern is not primarily whether people are transformed to be like the kingdom of God. It's, are you satisfied? And what Ecclesiastes has been saying for thousands of years is that we can never be fully satisfied. Because God has put eternity on the human heart. The reason nothing in this world can satisfy you is because you weren't 
made for this world. But, and this is a, I think this can give you great joy, like starting today. If you'll let it, instead of thinking that if you chase that desire to the end, you'll be truly satisfied, if you'll let it, you can find joy in the ache itself. So, God never gives us a desire that there's not something to fulfill it. We're thirsty, there's such a thing as water. Uh, A person gets hungry, there's such a thing as food. You have a sexual desire, there's such a thing as sex. And if you have a dull ache in your soul for something more, something more than this world, it's because you're not made for this world. It's not because you're unnormal, it's because you are normal. Because God made us with eternity in our hearts. And I find the way to true joy is not just to accept this, but to learn to look at the world this way. Which is a way not just of gratitude for the good stuff, but of joy and uh, worship the one who gave it. So I love the way C.S. Lewis says this. He said, He has learned to view all pleasures as shafts of glory, and he has tried to make every pleasure a channel into worship. Here's what he said. Gratitude exclaims, How good of God to give me this. Adoration, worship says, What must be the quality of that being whose far off and momentary flashes are like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. This, I think, is the trick to joy. Whenever you are experiencing pleasure, realize God didn't have to make the world this way. God didn't have to make the world with red lobster cheddar biscuits. He could have made it dull and bland and lifeless and no music, no taste, no pleasure. But what kind of God makes the world like this? And so we chase the sunbeam back to the sun. We thank God for our good and temporary gifts from our relationships to our health to our homes. But we know those are just flashes of joy. Those brief moments of pleasure that if, if we were to put all our weight of worship on them would, would kill us. We would become, you know, addicted to the pleasures. We would become, uh, slaves to those pleasures. But instead, we let them point back to the one who made us and gave them. And the only one who can ever truly satisfy. That's 